This is Loose Leaf, a multi-author podcast journal where we talk about goals, the ups and downs of writing, and where we try to warn you off of our greatest pitfalls. Make sure you like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash loose leaf podcast. We are also on Clubhouse. Just look for Loose Leaf Podcast. And if you need an invite to Clubhouse, follow us on Facebook and ask for one. We'll gladly send you one. Hello, welcome back to Loose Leaf Podcast. I am super excited to have Dr. Vanessa Howard with us. She is an author and an educator, which is my very favorite kind of person. And I'm really excited to talk to you today. I wanted to start by reading a little bit from your website to, to kind of introduce you. Okay. So first of all, you are an award-winning educator, which makes me excited. You have a passion for literacy specifically, and you mentor teachers and students on how to effectively use uh, liter- literary instruction. And I was just going through your <laughs> your website about all these amazing things that you've done. And I just thought, let's give you a moment to, to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and the things that you're the most passionate about that you would love everybody to know. Okay, I'm <clears throat> Vanessa Howard. My friends call me Dr. V. The thing that I'm passionate about mostly is education and just helping people make a better life for themselves. When I think about myself, I didn't return back to school until I was about 26. And so uh, I went back to school trying to be an example for my children. And so when I finally graduated at 33, it was like I felt like I was on a backpedal trying to make up for all the things that I didn't do right when I was younger. So um, I came into education. I started teaching kindergarten. And then from there, I became a reading specialist. Um, that gave me a, a different aspect to look at uh, students who were struggling reading in a regular classroom. Didn't find success in the classroom. However, when they came to my classroom, because the, the way I set it up, they found that success in there. So they loved coming to my class. And because they always got positive affirmations from me, no one told them what they couldn't do. I told them what they could do. And so from there, um, I became an administrative role, uh, instructional specialist, uh, reading coach, uh, building principal. And then ultimately I started working at a school district in the curriculum department. So in that curriculum department, I got another chance to look at the big picture again. And I saw um, how literacy was was, uh, a struggle. And so a lot of times when you go to school and you learn how to become a teacher, the teachers oftentimes they do not get adequate courses, I believe, in teaching reading. They may get one or two. But when you go into the actual classroom, you're not teaching to the average of the kids. You have them either above, they real, are really below. And every now and then, they may be right on grade level. So they needed to learn some strategies. So because I had uh, developed a repertoire of things, I was able to help out um, in my school district in that area. And then now I work... Um, with a, a company that work teach dyslexia training for teachers and also reading interventions. So nationwide, I go around teach workshops uh, to help teachers how, learn how to provide effective literacy instruction. And then I, the biggest thing that I love is I also I also work at a university where I'm working with a pre-service teacher. So I got them before they get jaded. 
<laughs> if that makes sense. So I'm coming in with a passion and I'm telling them, this is what you need to know. This is what the book says, but this is what you need to know when you get in the classroom, when you buy yourself. Theory is good, but you need to know how to apply it when you get in the classroom. So that's one of the greatest things that I really, um, I really like. And I feel like I'm having an impact not only on the currently serving teachers, but the future teachers. So I'm leaving my fingerprint before I leave this earth. <laughs> I love that. I actually was an elementary education major forever ago, like 20 plus years ago as well. And I totally understand what you mean about theory is great. But once you get in that classroom, it's so different. And you really do have to use that problem solving and figure out how do you help each of these children individually. So I love that you're getting to kind of give teachers that because I, I didn't feel like we got it 20 years ago. That was, you know, here's, here's your ideal classroom and this is how it's going to work. But no classroom is like that ever. So mm -hmm. I love that. Well, tell us a little bit about the book from the projects to a PhD. Pandemic, you bored? <laughs> so we at home, either I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get in good trouble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I, I, Clubhouse was new and one of my friends invited me. So I went to a Clubhouse meeting and I met um, the uh, NK Tribe Called Success and the leader is Nalena Kai. She had a 30-day writing challenge. And I was like, okay, so people have been telling me for years, you need to write a book, Vanessa, you need to write a book. So I joined the writing process, the, the challenge. And in that challenge, I was given a book coach and I was given some writing prompts and basically taken through the whole writing process from an author's perspective and a reader's perspective. And so um, I was told to make a list of 20 things that I really felt passionate about. So I wrote 20, 20 different things. I originally started off with one book that I wanted to do, but then when I looked at where my passion or what was leading me and my heart, then that led me to the project from the projects to a PhD. Um, in all honesty, uh, that was a good, it was a good thing. And I had to narrow down even more uh, focus, but the support that I got from the tribe was, um, I turned in my chapters, they, they read it, gave me feedback. I turned them back into an editor. Um, tribe had everything in-house that I needed. We had a, a uh, graphic designer who does our book covers. We had a, a content editor. Everything that you need for, for a regular publishing, this self-publishing um, group had everything I needed. And, and the, it's comprised of some national bestseller authors who were freely giving their feedback to me. And I really appreciated them to, to help make my writing stronger and better. Yeah. That is so cool. And I loved, I, I have not had a chance to grab the book, but I actually think I would enjoy it as an educator and just this whole process of you lifting yourself and how you're helping others as well. But some of the things I wrote down, just a couple of notes that uh, in this you cover growing up in the St. Louis projects mm -hmm. and how from those humble beginnings, you really got a firsthand look at the challenges in pursuing higher education, especially for, for those students growing up in those areas. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Okay. Growing up in the projects, uh, I had no choice because my mother was pregnant when they moved. Uh, but uh, my parents made the tough decision that, you know, we really couldn't afford seven children, a total of nine in the household, couldn't afford to continue to pay for um, rent, and the best way for us to make it and survive as a family so everybody could eat on a consistent basis was to go in public housing. 
So they grappled with that decision and they finally made it. Um, the thing that I remember most about the projects is being told a lot of no. And I didn't know a lot of that no was for my safety. Um, so anytime the screen door was open, now there were seven kids in the household now. So I would make my great escape. <laughs> Anytime, oh, the doors unlocked, I would run and I would just walk up and down the streets, I mean, uh, the area uh, in the projects, not knowing that um, it was not as safe as it should have been or could have been. And so the one thing that I did notice, um, it was very hot. If anybody know anything about the projects, it's public housing, you have the bare minimum. So everything is concrete. Um, you might see some grass and, and you, you'll see steel wires with uh, gates and barriers to keep people in and, and keep people out. Um, so the one thing that we did find a lot of in the projects was there was like a cooling mist. So people, uh, the, the St. Louis city would let, have people drive in and they would blow a smoke screen. Um, and so we thought it was just cooling factor, cooling. So we were in the summertime, it was hot. You running behind that truck and they're saying, come catch me, catch me. So we running behind that truck, not knowing that, uh, that they had made an agreement with the United States government. Um, so at that time, the United States was uh, in the 60s were uh, considering war with Russia. And so in that uh, preparations for war, they talked to St. Louis government and they spoke about using smoke screens just to, because the city in the projects, the, the projects looked like cities in Russia. So they used a smoke screen and they were going to just uh, spray it and just take some data, but we didn't know my parents didn't know that they were spraying radioactive material in the projects at that time. And so we're running behind the bus and I mean, the, the trucks and the guys are encouraging us. So we thinking it's safe, okay, come on, catch it. You can't catch it. And they would sometimes slow the truck down and let us get close enough. And then it would speed up. So that was one of the major things I remembered about the projects, but it wasn't until like the 1990s that people started uh, doing lawsuits. So I asked my mother, I'm like, well, we live down there. Uh, did you know that they were spraying? Did you know that that was going on? She was like, no, I didn't know. And then she was like, I kept you in the house. I said, no, you didn't. Every time that screen door was unlocked, I was outside. I was outside running and playing with the other kids because you think about it, a kid just staying in a complex that's cubicle-like, that's not realistic. And so she had a lot of children. I'm not saying she did not watch me as well as she could, but she had a lot of uh, well, seven kids <laughs> <laughs> and she also had some health issues as well so and and so she she laid down a lot um because she was not feeling well so I didn't want to disturb her so I was just outside playing with other kids not knowing so from there if you think about it one thing St. Louis does is one of their questions is what high school did you go to so basically, they're just testing to see what, what is your socioeconomic background. If you went to a city public school, oh, poor Vanessa. So um, if you think about it, if I'm coming up from the projects and I, my parents worked their way up, my mom saved up enough money to get us a house in North St. Louis, and I'm coming from the projects and then I go to North St. Louis, St. Louis City School, um, my mom is from Mississippi. My dad is from Arkansas. So I had an accent. So it was a Mississippi accent mixed in with uh, Arkansas and <laughs> my hood accent. <laughs> and so when I started trying to do higher learning, uh, a lot of the instructors, they would say, Vanessa, you're a good student, but 
you need to work on how you talk. So then that made me draw inwardly and it made me not want to participate and be active in the world. But then um, after I got my, after I had my children and I returned back to school, I was like, no, I got to fight this. I, got, I, I can do better. I can do better. So I started practicing, trying to work on my speech um, and not knowing quite what to do. Um, so I just, I stayed with books and I, I, I read books and I, I, I hung around people that I thought was smart. Um, I joined different clubs to try to make myself better. And then even as I uh, became an educator, a lot of those insecurities that I had left, because I was like, okay, I'm doing a doggone thing. <laughs> yeah. And then when I went back to school to work on my master's, um, the teachers, they, it was, the master's program is, for education is paper-driven. So you did participate in discussions, but you wrote a lot of papers and you answered a lot of questions and you had a lot of tests. So paper was my strength. Writing was my strength. So then I was like, okay, if I can do this, I hit a straight A average. I can do that. I'm going to go, I'm going to take a couple courses in the PhD program. So then I, I went to this the same university that was praising me. And I went to that uh, for the PhD program and I audited a class. I said, let me audit and see if this is for me. So I paid for the class. I audited the class, which means I could participate. So as I was in the class, the professor, she um, asked me in front of the class, she said, Vanessa, when I look at your, your writing, you really are a really good writer. But when I listen to how you talk, your writing doesn't match up to your, your, your writing. And, and it's making me wonder, did you really, are you really the authentic writer of your papers? Oh, wow. In the world? And then, so she, and then so I just sat there and I got caught. It just drew me back to my childhood. So I'm like, okay, yes, ma'am. And so she continued to tell me, if you want to do better, Vanessa, you're going to work on your speech. Um, your, uh, no one is going to understand what you're saying and no one's going to want to hear what you have to say until you get that part of your life together. So at that point, I withdrew from class and I didn't go back. I didn't go back. Uh, it took me about eight years to go back to school. And I found the right university this time that praised me and gave me the uh, different things that I needed. But then what I learned was because of her feedback, I went to a speech coach and she was like, okay, Vanessa, she said, there's nothing wrong with how you speak. That's just you. That's your personality. If someone really is interested in what you have to say, um, they will listen. And if they're not, they're going to find excuses. Why? And so I was like, well, you got to give me something. She said, you are fine, Vanessa, you're fine. So she just told me to work with tongue twisters. So I'm Peter Piper, Peck the Pip, Pup, Pup, and she sold shells by the sea. So in the car, I was playing with those word games. But what I found out is that those word games really were helpful. It gave me a fun way to laugh at myself and also gave me a fun way to play with language. So I was glad that I went to her. But she, she was like, this is the only thing I'm going to tell you to do. And she said, you really don't have to do that. She said, I just think that it was not you. It was the instructor. And so um, at knowing that, help me to come out of my shell and just be myself be the and be the best that I could be um, when I represented myself yeah I love that I love how I don't sometimes I wonder if teachers understand some of those little things they say how impactful they can be on our own self-esteem and and sometimes when you were 
we were talking, it made me think of the story I heard just this week. Um, an adult woman stood up to, to say something and she said that she's always hated reading. So, you know, your issue was with the way you spoke. Hers was she hated reading because she said, I started hating reading in the third, can't remember if it was third or fourth grade, but she said, we had independent reading time and we were, she said, I, I remember the day I was under my desk. I was reading my book and I read the page and I was like, I have no idea what I read. So she started all over and she said out of the corner of her eye, she could see another girl who was just flipping pages because she was a faster reader. And she said that, you know, just the fact she was so slow turned her off of reading. Like it's something so tiny like that. And, and I love that kind of what you do is, is helping teachers Mm -hmm. learn to recognize that and, and combat it as well as I'm sure you talk to them about speech as well because of Mm -hmm. that experience. Yes. I I talk to them about grooming and modeling when you're getting ready to interview, the types of questions you need to ask. And they're like, nobody ever told me. I said, no one ever told me. So I'm telling you, I want you to learn from my mistakes. And that's that's kind of my mantra now. I've learned a lot and I'm trying to make sure that I pass that on to the next generation who possibly look like me or had the same type of experiences that I had. And, And not necessarily just look like me, but help them learn to grow and change and present their best, best self. Yeah. I love that. Um, there is a phrase that you have in connection with your book that I absolutely love. It's called when we know better, we should do better. Mm-hmm. And so I'm guessing that is just your life motto now. And I wondered how did you reach that point? Like, where did you come up with that phrase and what does it mean to you? That phrase came from someone else, and I don't want to take ownership of it, but that, that is my mantra. Um, when you know better, you should do better. Um, when you learn and you change, you have to, in order to grow, you have to do better. And sometimes when we are, um, we know how to do things, we just don't incorporate it. We continue to do what's comfortable for us. And that's kind of what I, I, I try to let the student teachers know that the one most uncomfortable position you're ever going to have is be a teacher because it's not about you anymore. It's about those kids and about what they need and not what I like to do. What you like to do goes on the back burner. What you need to do for the kids is in, in the forefront of your mind. That is a wonderful thing. And, and you're so right that so many times we learn something and we just don't incorporate it. It takes us mm-hmm. many times hearing it before we finally make it part of who we are and what we're doing. I did want to also talk about your first writing was writing nonfiction books for elementary students. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I started teaching third grade and we started the map test and common core And so the students were used to reading basically um, fiction, but 50% of those uh, assessed tests by the state of standardized tests are 50% uh, nonfiction, 50% fiction. And so the students didn't want to read anything that was nonfiction because they thought that it was boring. Um, And I have to admit some of the uh, selections that we had in the classroom were not engaging enough. So I just kind of did an interest uh, survey on them to find out what what they liked, um, who was their favorite artist, uh, what did they do out of school, um, and just get a better gist of what they wanted to read on a a, um, 
rainy day, what would you like to read? What would you do? So when they told me those different activities, I just started writing little short passages. Um, if, if someone liked, um, uh, my, I, sometimes I was off, often given predominantly boy classes. And so they like uh, basketball books and basket, uh, uh, car books. So I bought those magazines and I started reading them. And so I would take the articles and I would cut and paste the pictures, but I would make it in a developmentally appropriate grade level for them. And, and I individualized the reading to meet third grade or if they were reading on the first grade level to match their reading level. And so it got them engaged, it, it, it put a spark in them. Um, and then that uh, spark led them to wanting to read more. So then I started making more stories for them. And um, what ended up happening for the lack of a better word is sometimes necessity breeds possibilities. So I ended up getting a divorce. And you, when you're used to two income, I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna make it. And I still had two children at home with me. So um, got a divorce. And so some of the teachers like, Vanessa, you need to make this into a book. So I partnered with another lady. And so she and I made some workbooks with a uh, high interest reading. At that time, Hurricane Katrina happened. So the students, we wrote stories about Hurricane Katrina. We wrote about uh, the first black, a woman firefighter. She was in Kansas City, Missouri. We pulled different things that they that they wanted or incorporated that were high interest and incorporated them into um, the classroom. And what ended up happening is all of a sudden our kids on the state standard test, they started scoring high. So people, the teachers were asking, what did you do? And so I shared with them. And so in for a nutshell, for about a year and a half, after two years, we begin to sell those items to teachers and um, they were being bought by school districts across the country. Um, but we, we were self-published. And then at that time, I think I went back to school and I didn't have as much time to devote um, to marketing as I should have. And then uh, I was trying to feel my way around. You know how you, you, you do a dream and, and it comes, comes to pass. And then you're trying to find your place in life and your place in, 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 in the world. And so I was, that's when I went back to school to start working on my doctorate. And then I got a, a position um, that was high demand um, in a school district in the curriculum department. So I didn't have time to push the books and I didn't want it to look like a conflict of interest of I'm working for a school district and I'm selling books. And so I kind of let that go to the wayside, but it was really good um, feedback that we got from the school districts was that it inspired their kids to read more. And the data shows that the kids actually did better on the standardized tests using our materials. Because that's the self-publishing is, is, is really very, very hard to do. It's, it's, it demands a lot of your time because you don't have that, that push from uh, a traditional publishing house. So all of the work is on you, taking the books to the uh, uh, post office, doing all those heavy lugging, uh, counting the books out, making sure you got the invoices in the boxes. And all of that was a lot, a lot to do and, and work and go to school at the same time. It's just amazing, though, that you could have made that your, your, your career just doing that. And. Mm -hmm. Yet, because you said you wanted to be a good example for your children, is that why you finally went back for your PhD, or was there something else driving that? It was uh, honestly, it was my mother, my mother's dream, and like I said, I've had a lot of 
aspirations. Uh, but my mother's dream was she and I was supposed to go back. We went back to school. Um, she started going back to school herself because she wanted to make it better, make an example for me. And so she had, I think she highest she made it was ninth grade. And she had to help out with the family with uh, finances. And so she went back to school and that's how we ended up leaving the project. She went back to school to be a nurse's aide. Then she continued to go on um, and she got her associate degree. So by the time I went to high school, she had an associate degree and we both went to the same university um, to go to school. So she went during the day because she worked at night and I went at night because I worked during the daytime. So our goal was to uh, open up a um, early childhood center in, in the North St. Louis where it, there wasn't any quality daycare. And we wanted to make a good school so that kids could start off their educational endeavors in a great way because we know the power of early childhood. Um, in a nutshell, our senior year, she died. Um, she died. I graduated a year before her um, and she was going into her senior year that summer and um, she ended up being diagnosed with cancer. So uh, in the back of my head, I feel like I'm doing this for two of us. So it's not just for myself, it's for my mom and her legacy. So that's why I push myself the way that I do. We all need those examples, don't we? Those. Yes, we do. <laughs> okay, so you have a captive audience. Whoever's listening, I guess, technically they could turn it off, but <laughs> what would uh -oh. you really want people to know and understand? I'm trying to decide which direction I want to go. Um, I don't really want to focus on the writing part because I think the education and how we can help these, especially in the elementary years, the, those formative years with learning to love reading. What would you tell people in general that you wish they knew so that they could help either their children or I know a lot of schools are always asking for the community to come in and be a part of that learning process. So what is it that you wish everybody just knew so that the process would be smoother and we could help more children? Uh, the first thing is that by the age of three, 80% of the brain is formed. So you want to get in as much as possible with learning activities at home. So you play with your children, you play nursery rhyme, you read to them. You let them sit in your lap and see you point to the words because then that'll let them know that words have meaning. The second thing is when you think about reading, if, if a student is not reading by third grade on, on level, the likelihood of them ever catching up is not good. So early childhood is the crust. It's the backbone of education. Um, the thing that I stress with my uh, college students, because they were like, Dr. Howard, you're just so hard. You're just so hard on us. I said, I have to be. It's, we're in a state of urgency. And then I said, let me explain it to you this way. 70% of the men in jail are reading below the fourth grade level. So that means 30% of the men on the streets are reading on grade level. So our job as educators and our jobs as parents is to make sure that we give them the best foundational skills possible to be readers. So for instance, my granddaughter, um, she started off when her, my daughter was pregnant, we were singing to her. I was rubbing my daughter's stomach. She's like, no, mom, you're going too far now. You're, going, you're a little bit too close. You're <laughs> I said, it's going to pay off. 
So she in turn was doing that when I wasn't around. When grandbaby uh, was born, we started reading to her, singing to her. Um, and she just automatically began to have a love for reading. So even though she didn't know what we were saying, the tones that we were using. So when you're reading, they may not understand everything you're saying, but you're setting a prerequisite. You're setting some things, some some. Uh, you're planting some seeds that are going to that are going to grow later on. So we read the stories to her, um, and then I labeled everything in my house. And I don't know if anyone has seen the color purple, but my daughter came over one day and she was like, uh, and at the color purple, um, Whoopi Goldberg was trying to teach her sister how to read. So she had the windows labeled, the tables labeled, labeled. So I had posted notes all over the house with names and labels on it. And so my daughter came over one day, W-I-N-D-O, door, D-O-O-R. And so my granddaughter started copying. I said, don't listen to your mama. Your mama's being funny. I said, but what is that? She said, it's a window. I said, how do you spell it? W-I-N-D-O, window. So in a nutshell, seeing those words, seeing those labels made her or uh, impressed upon her or helped her to become an early reader. So she, by the age of three and a half, four, she was reading. Um, five years old, she went to school. The teacher was uh, for kindergarten. Um, she was reading the directions on the board. And the teacher was like, I can't write anything without her reading it first. Sometimes I have to tell her, don't tell the kids ahead of time. Don't tell them. I said, she's just excited about learning. And then I, then I asked the question, well, what are you doing to challenge her? If you know she's reading, she's a reader, what are you doing to help her out? Can you help her out? And so um, she started giving her some extra activities and letting her be one of the leaders in the classroom. So if you lay those foundational skills, in your student, your, your children, sometimes they act like they're not listening. And it's, it's not it's not even just academic. You're telling them some good moral things. You're telling them, you're teaching them something. And they're looking at you like, yeah, 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 mama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they've heard it so much from you when they go out with their friend. Oh, I can't do that because my mama going to kill me. My mama don't play. And so it's, it's the exact same thing with reading. Um, you, you, they will learn it with automaticity. And automaticity means that you learn it automatically. So when you get in your car, you don't think, oh, I'm going to put it in reverse. Oh, I need to put it in drive. You just automatically do it. So the things that you teach your children when they are young, when they get older, they will automatically do them as they are reading. So just keep, stay focused. It may be frustrating that time. Let them see you read. And, and so a lot of times I have to, uh, I, I have to make sure like when my granddaughter is reading, that I'm reading also so that she can see that reading is important to me and should be important to you too as well. Yeah, that is so, so important. I know um, we've uh, we've seen that in our family as well because I, well, I wasn't always a reader. Fifth grade is what turned me into a reader. I had a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Middleton. I still remember a lifetime later. Uh, with where where the red fern grows and that's where I learned to get excited about a story and to uh, see how reading could actually help me because I grew up moving every year every year and a half so for me my education was had all these gaps this was before common core so my math is atrocious to this day (laughs) (laughs) luckily my mom was an elementary school teacher and her focus was math she was um that's what she did but she didn't go to school until after all four of her kids 
were born and she ended up divorced and kind of the same thing decided, well, what can I do? And, and she went to school to become a teacher. So we love teachers and my family, <laughs> that That's is good. one of our favorite things, but, um, but I loved how you said that we have to foster that love of reading in our homes. So when they do go to school, it's not this foreign concept, you know, and I think that's a, a challenge in today's world because we are so tied to our electronics and it's so easy to hand them a, a phone or an iPad or something or turn on the TV and so that we can get whatever done. But I think it doesn't take a lot. Like you said, just letting them see us read mm-hmm. and a bedtime story. I miss those days when my girls were in their beds and I'm sitting in the doorway reading little house on the prairie. <laughs> and you know, now they're all grown up and I'm like, okay, now I need grandbabies to read too, I guess. <laughs> but I, I love that, that that's your focus. And, and I do hope that that's something that our listeners can really think about and go, you know what? maybe we need to turn off our electronics and take some time to read. And, you know, and even that's hard because we read on electronics now too. <laughs> and then, so what I do um, with my, with my granddaughter um, during the pandemic, uh, a lot of her virtual learning was left up to me because my mom, her mom had to work. Um, and so I always gave her a break and I said, how much time do you need before we start back? And she would tell me 20 minutes, 30 minutes, six minutes. I said, okay. So I set the timer. So it's her choice. So I set a timer. She takes her break and she does whatever she wants to do. Um, and then when the timer goes off, then she comes back to me and then we'll do uh, a learning activity. Then I tell her, we're just going to do it for 20 minutes. And so I really set the timer for a half hour. <laughs> but since she's not controlling it, she doesn't know. Right. So I set it for 20 minutes and then after, uh, I mean, 30 minutes. And then when the timer goes off then she goes back and does what she wants to do and then that evening <laughs> okay so how much time do you need before we get started and then she'll tell me the time then I will set the time again then we'll do another 20 30 minutes because if you want your children to be uh, a, a average student they, they should read between uh 30 minutes a day but if you want them to be an AB student you want them to read a lot more than that you want them to read between 45 to an hour a day, and that would help them become better readers, not only better readers, but they would start incorporating the language in their writing, so their structure of the writing becomes better, their spelling gets better, so it, all, it enhances all areas, and, and with that enhancement, it should also increase the uh, their understanding of other subject areas as well. Right. Because reading is required for those as too. Exactly, and if you can read and comprehend what you're reading, then you'll have success in those other areas. Um, I wondered outside of reading and education, what are your other passions that you might like to talk about? Because we like to just get to know people and then uh, I'll add the links to your website and where they can find your book and and hopefully people will come find you. Okay, well, honestly, I love to sing and I love to sew, so two S's. Um, I used to sing with the St. Louis Symphony Choir and that was on Mondays. Um, and in the choir, we had an opportunity to learn other foreign languages and to sing in, in Italian. Um, that was a big learning curve for me. And I really appreciated learning that. Um, I had a chance to travel at a discounted rate, got a chance to sing with over 100 people. 
I, I'm not saying that I had friends with 100 people, but to be exposed to 100 people at one time and get to know them and learn them and make some lifelong connections, to see the symphony, uh, we, there were times when we uh, we did things in combinations with the symphony choir, I mean, symphony orchestra. So just to see them in action and to see and hear um, uh, instrumentals and, and the guests that they brought in, they brought in take six, they brought in, um, I can't remember some of the artists that they brought in. So I had opportunity to be exposed to um, some free concerts. You know, I was just sitting <laughs> in the back listening, enjoying. And every now and then I had to sing do what or whatever. <laughs> But I had opportunity to enjoy that. But after the pandemic, uh, it kind of fizzled. So I don't know exactly where things are going to go or happen with that the choir at that time. And then um, being an empty nester, both of my children are grown. And so I'm home alone. And they got tired of me calling and said, Mommy, you got to do something. So I started sewing clothes. And uh, uh, when the pandemic started, I was able to, my company, encouraged us uh, because we, we couldn't do any nationwide presentations. So they encouraged us, if you could sew, to make some um, masks and give them and donate them to um, healthcare facilities. And so I was able to make some masks um, and, and donate them to the people. Um, but now my sewing machine, is, is the needle broke and I never did. <laughs> I never did replace it. So I, I'm going to get back to that soon because it, it's a very good way to be creative. I, you know, I made curtains for my bathroom <laughs> uh, and it, it, it just it helps me to release some creativity yeah. and also do something with a purpose. That's wonderful. I guess the best place for them to go and learn about having you come and speak to them would be through your website? Through my website, yes. Okay. Okay. I know next week I am actually going to the, I actually live in Arkansas. So when you said, you know, Mississippi and Arkansas, I was like, oh, yay. I'm going to go and speak with them about how authors can come in and as guest speakers in the school system to help get children excited about reading and how they can kind of make those connections between reading and writing. That was one of the things that you said earlier that I really liked is the more we read, the better our writing skills become because we start to feel that cadence that you mentioned and we start to see how words work together to create meaning. Is that something you would be interested in? Yeah, I'm interested in speaking to schools. Um, one thing is the kids need to see a model um, of someone that kind of look, looks like them or someone who has faced diversity because some of the home lives that our children have are very tragic and traumatic. Um, it breaks my heart sometimes listening to them um, share things. Um, but um, there was, for instance, um, when I was working more closely in a school, um, there were some children that had faced some abuse. And so um, they came to my office crying and um, the teacher didn't understand why, why this particular girl was so tactical, defensive. When I looked at her, I was like, I kind of get this. So she, I let her talk. I let her express herself. And when she got through crying, I said, can you believe I'm a, I'm a victim? I mean, I'm a victim. I am a survivor of abuse. And she said, no, not you, Miss Howard. I said, yes, it was. Yes, me. And so I shared my experience with her. And um, she ended up feeling better. I said, so if I can overcome and go through it, and I'm not telling you, you don't have to do work. You're going to have to do some self-work. 
um, to help yourself out. If you want me to share your time with your counselor, uh, uh, you want to share information with the counselor, she can help you out as well. Um, but anytime you need to talk to me, feel more than free. And then so I went back to the teacher and I said, the reason she, if, if someone bumped this little girl in line, she, that was the first reaction. If you just slightly touched her desk or, and it was because she had to fight at home. Um, and so I had to share that information. I shared it broadly with the teacher. I said, you really need to get to know your student. And then she was like, why does she always run to you? I said, and I, I told her, I said, she's tactical defensive because of some things that she experienced at home. And I said, so you need to be a little bit more cognitive of that. I said, so if she ever get to that point at that, I, and then I was a principal. I said, if she ever get to the point where you can't deal with her, just send her to my office. And then so uh, I made sure in my office, I had bean bags, I had comfortable pillows, I had things that they could hug and, and different things. This was pre-COVID now. And so uh, whenever she came in my office, I didn't ask any questions. I said, uh, do you need the bean bag? What do you need? And so most of the time she would just get in the bean bag and get her cuddle up with a toy. And I would leave out the office, then I would come back and check up on her. And then we would have a conversation and then if she was ready, I would send her back to her class or either I would have her bring um, her learning materials in the office with me and she would do her work in the office with me. But sometimes teachers just need to know their students and, and parents too. You need to don't just assume because your child is smiling and say everything, okay. Make them say specifically, how was your day at school? It was good. Make them tell you what was good about it. And sometimes just pulling that information alone helps you see how their day is and clue you into what is going on internally with them that they're not expressing to you right now. Okay. So I think I figured out why I keep like, I, I think I want to ask a question that I know you can be honest about and, and help some of us, but I'm not quite sure how to ask it. So just know this is going to be me being very awkward, but um, so even outside of school and like you keep mentioning, um, being that example, especially for, for those students who may look like you, what is the one thing, like, obviously I've had a different experience than you growing up. What is something that you just wish you could tell people? Like there are times when I just wish I could tell people stop being stupid <laughs> because, um, growing up and moving every year to year and a half, generally in the middle of a school year. And most of my elementary school days were down in like Mobile, Alabama, and so I learned very early that I didn't have the time to get all picky and choosy on who I decided would be my friends. So I've always had friends from any race, religion, like I've never let that even kind of be a part of my decision-making when it comes to getting to know people. But I have you know, seen so many things where people just make these snap judgments based on skin color or religion or the area of the town that you're growing up in. What do you wish you could just really tell people? And, and feel free to say it because we're all about being real and authentic. And just like I said, sometimes I just want to go stop being stupid people and get over yourself, you know, <laughs> and you know what, if you could just say, I know that's probably a, a dangerous question to ask, but no, it's not. It, it's that's the purpose of this. The reason I really wrote this book, why I chose this, 
And for the lack of a better word, I feel like these last four or five years, a lot of tensions, racial tensions were under, under the surface. And it feels like to me that the Band-Aid just got ripped off. And so people had no problem expressing how they felt or doing things that they normally would have suppressed because it became a norm. Um, the thing that I would like to share is that I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like you. I put my socks on one foot at a time. We have more in common than we do different. And if you would get out of your social bubble and get to know people and just start speaking to people, uh, someone that's a little bit different than you or someone even on your job, you don't have to go that far, your neighbors. Sometimes neighbors, we are not friendly to each other. We live in the same neighborhood, but if something happens, did you see something happen in my house? Then you wanna become friendly. But if you are friendly all along, and, and one, one good proverb, in order to gain a friend, you have to show yourself friendly. So in order to gain any new friends, and I'm not saying that you are best buddies, but just to get a better understanding of other people, move outside of your social bubbles, talk to people um, informally, formally, get to know them. I do that all the time. And I said, the, the, the bad thing for me is sometimes I'm asked, well, Vanessa, why are all black people angry? I can't ask, I can't speak for everybody. There are individuals, there are reasons for the anger justified or unjustified there are reasons why people feel the way that they do but the only way that for you to feel empathy or to 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 be accepted and i'm not saying you have to uh believe or accept everything about 100 is to get to know just simply get to know people speak to them um and and don't be pretentious um hey homie speak like you normally speak don't try to pretend it because you're with one particular culture that you are hip and you know that. And 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 there are some um, triggers that sometimes uh, prevent uh, another culture from being responsive to you, um, especially us. For lack of a better word, there's there's sometimes people will ask. Um, I'm, I could be honest. Yes, you could be totally honest. Okay. <laughs> now, before Kim Kardashian and before Paris Hilton, it was not common to ask somebody, is this your real hair? So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes uh, I will, um, I'm asked, is that your real hair? Can I touch it? No. Is it mine? Yes. I paid for it. Whether I paid for it to have it sewn in, glued in, stable in or whatever, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, just just be uh, uh, when you're thinking about asking the questions and just just clarify. Um, you know, I'm just speaking from my heart. I want to know. I want to get to know you better. And this may may be a stupid question. And if I'm asking it wrong, I'm apologizing. But I just want to know. I really like your hairstyle. How did you do it? That's a better way than is this your real hair? <laughs> yes, it's like it's like slow down think things through before you speak and just, just it's, it comes down to common courtesy and respect, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I <laughs> thank you for sharing that story because I know as an author, there are a lot of things I'm just curious about. And, uh, and sometimes it's, it's not, 
I think it's just, I want to understand. That's just kind of who I am. So I'll make sure that I (laughs) try to think things through as I ask people questions, because I'm always like, hey, I'm curious about this. And you might know because I don't. Right. So I, I'm, and that's the only way you can find answers is to ask questions yeah. and be be unafraid to ask questions. And I think it, you think about all of us in a human race. None of us were born racist. None of us were. It was a taught skill, and the only way to unteach it is you're going to have to undo some things. You're going to have to believe in the human race. Um, you're going to have to uh, explore and talk to someone outside of your race. And that's the one thing that I did in the last chapter of my book. I gave 10 different strategies uh, just to have courageous conversations to assist out with developing relationships with uh, someone outside of your culture. My dog's going to bark. <laughs> I, I, I forgot to cut the TV off before we started. <laughs> so I'm hoping that TV noise, that background noise. I, I need background noises. I'm sorry. I'm used to my kids being at home and I had a dog. I totally understand. I I do the same thing with music. So uh, my listeners know that, like I said, we're all about being real and authentic. You see no makeup. I'm just like, (laughs) Um, and I think that's, I think that's probably part of what we're getting to here at the end is that we all need to be real and let other people be real and be willing to ask questions to get to know them, as you said, and just, just last, well, um, yeah, just last week I was talking with another author, Damian Larkin from Ireland. And, you know, I was laughing because I thought I have a Southern accent. He's got an Irish accent. People are going to listen to the podcast and go, I have no idea what's going on. I need subtitles probably. But, you know, it is so fun to get to know people from different places and different backgrounds. And we have so much that we can learn from each other and share. And I think it goes exactly to what you were saying about we weren't born prejudiced. It's something that we learn and we can teach our own children and our grandchildren not to be that way. And we can do that through literature by sharing stories from all these other cultures and just showing that we have a respect for our differences because our differences are good. But like you said, we have more in common than we choose to see a lot of times. So, well, I know you probably have a lot of stuff that you need to get to today, but I am just so glad that you were here and that you let me be awkward (laughs) Uh, because I think, I think there's, you know, some of us that, don't like I really don't understand the prejudice side but I don't know how to I guess help the situation and so I'm glad that at least having you here today and letting you talk and we're going to add the the link to your book I hope people will go find it if if for no other reason than to just learn about some of the struggles that people here in America have And that, you know, we're supposed to be this great country where everybody has equal opportunities, but that's not our reality. And I think we have to learn to recognize that, accept it, and then we can work toward making that better. And I I really do hope that that's where we're going to get, you know, (laughs) I don't think it's going to be an easy process, but I do hope that, that at least we're going to be trying to get there. 
And thank you for letting me come on your podcast. We met on Clubhouse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a great place to meet lots of people. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, thank you, Vanessa, so much. And good luck with the book. It just came out in June. Was it June 15th? June 15th. 15th. Mm -hmm. And um, I hope it does well for you. And if nothing else, I'm so glad that you are out there talking to educators and working with our students to help them become lovers of books, because that is a wonderful, Mm -hmm. wonderful thing. Well, for eight days in a row, I was Amazon number one bestseller in um, uh, biographies and nonfiction. Nice. Biographies and more. Yes, for eight days straight, <laughs> so you guys can make you get back there, okay? Yes, we will do all that we can to help you get back there. <laughs> I feel like instead of ending with keep writing or start writing, we should end with keep reading, or if you haven't made the time recently, make some time to start reading again. 